Macworld Podcast number 397 for March 5th, 2014. Brought to you by Igloo, an internet that you'll actually use, and Warby Parker, classically crafted eyewear at a revolutionary price point. Hi, it's Chris Green. Welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. And once again, I'm joined by my partner and skating fiend, Serenity Colba. Hello, hello. Hello. Yeah, I, I bring up the skating thing, thing because I just got a notice from my local roller derby team, uh, Santa Cruz Derby Girls, I think, uh, saying the season is coming up. So I know you're a, a what do you call yours, a derbier? Or? Yeah, der- derby girl, roller skater, roller derby player. Okay. There's a variety of names at this point. Right. So I have to think that the schedules are coordinated. So you're practicing now, right? Yes. Uh, I'm on Boston's travel team, which means that I could play teams like Santa Cruz. Uh, in fact, I, we played Sacred City, which is in Sacramento last year. Um, and our official travel season, the international season, um, starts in December 30th, but most leagues don't kind of gear up until March, and it goes from March to June. So all of us are, are heavy in training right now, getting ready to play some games. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm going to try to go to some games this year. I haven't been for a couple of years uh, because the first one, somebody actually got stomped, and I thought maybe that wasn't so good. <laughs> but friends of mine said, no, 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 that doesn't really happen. It isn't supposed to happen like that, but in this particular Usually case. Usually the games, yeah, they're a little, they're a little closer. Yeah, this one got it. No, I no, I mean literally stomping. There was like skate to face. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. no, that doesn't usually happen. <laughs> no, I've I've seen it on TV, you know, many years ago. But no, this was like the real deal. Um, and it was somebody who just clearly was <laughs> was a, <laughs> a little, little off their rocker. <laughs> I think so. They were taken away, and I don't think ever brought back again. Um, I love roller derby. I'd love to devote this entire episode to it, but. Sadly. <laughs> Sadly, we cannot. We'll have to, that'll have to be an offshoot uh, podcast for us. No, what I'd like to talk about, um, the first thing I want to talk about is Tim Cook, which I thought was brilliant, where in the stockholders meeting last week, he tells the National Center for Public Policy Research basically to get out right now. And so they came out with this press release that said, why is Apple putting money into sustainability when it's not making any, any money for them? And we all saw it. We got, did you get that press release when it came out? I did, and I spent a couple minutes laughing about it. Right. So, you know, if that wasn't enough, they actually had somebody there at the stockholders meeting, and they stood up, and they asked him directly, you know, we want to know what your sustainability numbers are. How much are you spending on this? And if you're not making a profit on it, we want you to cut it out. At which point, Cook responds, and you can fill in the rest of the story. Yeah, Cook responds and basically says, I don't care about bloody ROI when it comes to making our products nicer. Um, and more sustainable. And if you think that that's how I should be running my company, then you should stop buying our stock and sell off your stock, which yeah. was a very polite way of saying, you know, shut the front door, get out. <laughs> yeah, I was so pleased. I mean, not just because I agree with, with Apple's policy on this, but to see a company so visibly supporting something that is benefiting not just their bottom line and not just their stockholders. Because so often you hear about companies saying, well, we can't do this good thing or we can't do that good thing because we have to make money for our shareholders. And of course they do. They're in business to do that. But on the other hand, that doesn't exclude doing things like lobbying for better working conditions or trying to make sustainable products if you can when when you don't have to muck up landfills in the oceans, the air with this stuff. So good Absolutely. for Tim Cook. 
great for Tim Cook. And you know what? I, I really, I have been an admirer of Tim Cook since he sort of came to the public stage and the way that he deals with um, people, both on the financial calls and, and these stockholder meetings is just phenomenal. He has such a great way of exp- like, he almost never loses his cool. And when he does lose his cool, it's very direct. It's very crisp. Um, and usually it's disguised as an insult um, that's almost too intelligent to get, which I kind of love. He's just, you know, his words are very, very Southern barb. It's almost House of Cardsian in some ways. Well, right, because he invoked the word bloody, which yeah. I think, you know, for the Brits, that would be a horrible thing to say. For us, it's not quite so much, but at least, you know, he didn't drop the F-bomb or something that he might have done. <laughs> not that these guys didn't Steve Jobs it. certainly would have. I th- Yeah, and that's it. I mean, even as rough as Steve Jobs could be, um, I'm trying to think of uh, like a shareholders meeting where, sure, he'll give you the eyebrow, you know, and then and sort of be stern about stuff. But I think this was a moment where you you see the normally unflappable Tim Cook go off on somebody to the extent that he can. Yes. Um, I And I don't think necessarily he would have gone quite so quite so direct if it had been a more public-facing thing, like a financial call. But uh, when someone sends out a press release that basically says, how dare Apple, you know, want to take care of the environment, uh, especially given, you know, his background in supply chain and, like, making sure that the supply chain is economically um, responsible and um, econo-responsible, it like it makes perfect sense for him to to stand up to take a stand and, and be like this is enough I don't want this question ever coming up again in a stockholders meeting or anywhere else. Well, so and good on you, Tim Cook. Good on you, Tim Cook. And also, I really like the idea that it wasn't just I'm trying to placate you or be angry at you, but really say this is what we stand for, and if you don't like it, you can put your money somewhere else. Which is generally not the sort of thing that a CEO will say. You know, they want to keep their stockholders happy. But in this case, he really drew a line in the sand and just said, tough. You know, and I, you know, maybe the subtext is, I know who's funding you guys. I know what your agenda is. And we're just not going to be a part of it. Absolutely. So one of the things that, that you sent along to talk about this week, and I think this is in line with this, is this, uh, this upcoming book about... Apple called Haunted Empire, Apple after Steve Jobs. And then also the Wall Street Journal took a little excerpt of it. So um, as this is your topic, why don't you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, well, I um, I hadn't heard much about the book until the Wall Street Journal published the excerpt. And then, of course, various people have reacted to it, including John Gruber on Daring Fireball. Um, and I don't know, the, expert, the, the excerpt is, you know, very well written and but at the same time, I think paints a much more dour picture of Apple. It's it's a very slanted picture of Apple. Um, and I feel like it's hard to make the uh, the accusations that she's making in that piece, or he's making, I'm not actually sure, <laughs> the gender of the author. Um, the, the, uh, the accusations that the author is making, I'm not, um, I'm, I just don't think that, they are um, like that you can back them up with serious facts. The the fact they're basically like, oh yeah, this is a completely different company, and I'm going to compare it 
to when Steve Jobs was ousted in the 80s because clearly it's the same exact circumstance. Yeah. Everybody at Apple is completely unhappy with Tim Cook. Uh, looking at that, I mean, I don't know how many, if any, sources that she interviewed that, uh, you know, who are currently working at the company. Um, if there are any, they've uh, got to be anonymous. I think Gruber said that in his piece. Because, you know, if you go on record for a book like this, it's probably the end of your career. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it um, it just, it seems to me like a great way to hop on the let's, let's bash Tim Cook's Apple uh, before we've really seen what it has a chance to do. I mean, Tim Cook, it's, God, I mean, it's only been what? This is going to be three years since Steve? Two years since Steve yeah, passed away? Yeah, two and some change, yeah. Yeah. Um, so... To say that the company is completely, you know, has lost its innovative spark and is just kind of shambling along as an empty shell of itself um, really, really kind of gets my goat a little bit. I, uh, we, we haven't had enough time. I, I agree with you. Um, I think one of the things that this speaks to, and even the title Haunted Empire, is, speaks more to the notion of, of people observing Apple from the outside, that so many people... So you have this crazy notion, and maybe particularly Wall Street, that Steve Jobs came up with every single idea they had there. He executed every single idea that came through there, that his personal stamp of approval was on every single thing. And in some cases, yes, Steve was had his fingers in a lot of pies, but he was just one guy. And he was one sick guy for a couple of years out of that, even though, you know, as driven as he was. So I think this idea that Apple is haunted by, well, Steve's not here anymore, and so what are we going to do? And gee, we just have this numbers guy. And part of, I think, why I'm tying it into the stock uh, stockholders meeting is that I do think that Tim Cook is starting to show something of himself. The fact that he, he turned on these guys and said, we're not about that. We're about something else. Um, almost immediately after he took over and, and Steve was gone, Apple started doing more charitable works, which I think is a reflection of him. And when you hear some of the interviews with him, you understand that here's a guy that's interested in giving back. And where Steve Jobs thought of Apple, his greatest work being a company that does great things, I think Cook looks beyond that and saying, yes, we do terrific things here as well, but what else can we do to make this a better world? Either directly through the products that we sell or the kind of initiatives we take to improve the world, make a cleaner environment, make better working conditions, and, and these kinds of things. So I think in terms of, if you're only looking at this as Jobs supposedly working in his basement, coming up with the next big thing, no, Tim Cook is not that guy necessarily. But of course, I mean, that's an illusion to begin with. So Apple, of course, is still working on things. But at the same time, in terms of creating a more mature company, I think that's Tim Cook, maybe more than Steve Jobs, that... He's looking outside his own vision. He's looking outside the company and really trying to do something in the business community that I think is wonderful. And maybe in that, that way, it's, uh, it's innovative on its own, that, that corporations have been so faceless and not really cared that much about real things that are important broadly. And, and maybe Tim Cookie's that guy. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, he's innovating. You said it best. He's innovating in a different sphere. Um, and there are... It really, it really annoys me that you know it's every all the genius of Apple is placed on Tim Cook or uh, on Steve Jobs' yeah. shoulders. Uh, Tim Cook 
has uh, like he his business acumen I think is was a hundred percent of the the business the regular business acumen of Steve Jobs is you know Jobs may have had the ideas but he did not learn until very recently kind of how to how to run a company properly mm-hmm. and and turns out how to run a company is hire the people who are uh, who are better than you at running the company and then work on the stuff that you want to work on right like it I don't know it. Uh, I, I think that the piece again is well written, but uh, but doesn't necessarily show the whole picture. When you're on the outside looking at it, it's it's hard to. Yeah, yeah, I, and I haven't read the book, and I don't. Very few people have because it's not out yet. But I think you know what came across a lot in the Wall Street Journal piece is how the guy works. That he's uh, yes, he's you know seems calm on the outside, but he's a tough guy. And of course, you know, and I, I don't see that that's a problem. I think if you're running a company that has more money than anybody you have to be pretty serious about what you have you to do. know how to make the tough decisions exactly and that they say well he doesn't have much of a social life and he, he you know it's flies across continents and yet he's there the next day and he's giving people the steely gaze over the numbers that they turn in okay maybe he's a tough guy maybe he's a really good businessman and maybe it would be uncomfortable to be in a meeting with him but why do i care i mean honestly what difference does that make to me it was uncomfortable to be in a meeting with Steve Jobs. Oh, too, much worse for I would different think. reasons. Yeah. No, I've saw Steve Jobs at various functions, uh, you know, Apple events, and I would never think of going up to the guy and saying, "Hello, Mr. Jobs. I, I'm a big <laughs> fan of your work." Um, although I could see standing next to Tim Cook and not necessarily approaching him, but having a conversation with him without feeling like lasers were going to come out of his eyes and burn me <laughs> to a crisp. Destroy you exactly. You know, just for the fun of it. He, where you know, Steve Jobs, I think. Maybe took a little pleasure every once in a while and just sort of saying, ah, let me just rip you a new one. Whereas I don't think Tim would, or he would do it more subtly where he does, walks away, and then two minutes later he went, wait a minute, I think he just ripped me a new one. Yep. And it, I think the one the one sort of omission in this piece is the lack of anything related to Joni Ive, who mm-hmm. is still a huge player at Apple, and has basically been more or less ignored. Um Joni Ive, I think, is the like one of the biggest creative forces there at Apple and his team and all of the engineers that are working uh, at Apple right now. It's it seems crazy to me that there's like yes, Cook is the entire company. Um, it's just not only is Cook the face of the company, but Cook is the only place where ideas might come from. And look at who he's promoted. They've all been you know stuffy suits. Uh, let's ignore all the people who are still at the company working hard and making innovative projects. Let's ignore the fact that he said repeatedly that, uh, that we're going to do multiple new uh, product categories in 2014. It's, you know, choose it, selective facts to, to prove your thesis. Well, that's the thing is that, you know, we're in the business and telling stories is hard when you're telling a very complicated story, when you have not just one angle that you could shoot for, but multiple angles. There's there's so much going on in a company that, and with individuals that how do you write this sort of nice narrative? Well, what you end up doing is cutting through stuff that is too complicated or you don't understand. And you try to, as you say, you fit this, what's reality to whatever narrative that you've decided to create in order to tell the story, which is just how you tell stories. I understand that. But, um, but it does tend to make for sort of, uh, you know, one dimensional uh, viewpoints. Yeah. Um, at this point, we are going to have a word from our sponsor, Igloo, and then we're going to be back to talk about the Apple TV. 
As I've said, Igloo is an internet that you'll actually use and like. Inter what? Internet. It's a way for you and your work team to collaborate by creating virtual workspaces where you can share calendars, work within Twitter like microblogs, share files, and importantly, comment on, rate, and like the work of those around you. Better yet, you can do this without having to call in the IT department, just drag in the modules you want to work with. And of course, you can create different workspaces for different teams, one for accounting, another for marketing, even one for the company roller derby team. Want to learn more? Go to igloosoftware.com slash macworld, and you can see a bunch of case studies from their customers. You can head to one of their events, or you can check out their five reasons to switch from SharePoint. So, give Igloo a try. It's free to use for up to 10 people, enough to get your whole team on board, and it's very affordable after that. Igloo also offers custom demos and fully designed proof of concepts for larger businesses. Again, that's Igloo. Give it a try at igloosoftware.com slash macworld. So one of the other things that came out of this stockholders meeting is that, well, I think Apple's done this actually about three times now where they sort of have played with this whole hobby notion of the Apple TV. And they said, well, it's sort of a hobby. Well, no, it's still a hobby. No, it's not. Now, this time, I think the latest is it is no longer a hobby because they've sold $1 billion yeah. worth of these things now. $1 billion. So the number is slightly off. They've, um, they've made $1 billion in, uh, in revenue, uh, including the things that have been sold on the Apple TV. So I think that includes things like movies that people have rented or purchased on the Apple TV. So the numbers are slightly skewed, ah. um, but it still signifies, you know, that's that's a lot of money made on what has been heretofore just a hobby product for Apple. And it's been clear by their, um, by their financial results each quarter that the, the Apple TV is slowly growing. And while it may not necessarily have the market share of some of the other set-top boxes yet, uh, consumers have taken enough of an interest in it, whether that's partially the, the fault of the media being like, hey, guys, the Apple TV is going to be something special. Apple might do something amazing in the TV space. Or it's just people seeing their friends having an Apple TV. Um, or something like AirPlay, which I think, which is a huge feature of Apple's that uh, that I think has sold many an Apple TV. It, it was what convinced me to finally get one for for my house. Um, I I think that Apple is finally ready to kind of take the next step and uh, and move forward with putting more resources on the Apple TV team and and seeing what they can really accomplish with some with some added finances and some added weight to the product. Well, at this point, do you think that they're is a clear winner in the set-top box? Is there is there somebody else to beat? I mean, we know there's Roku out there and then the, the game boxes. Yeah. But I th I think for the average user, Roku is you – know, I like the Roku box. I have. The Roku box is nice, but there's no real clear-cut, this is the dominator in this industry. And mm -hmm. I think that's what intrigues Apple in the first place. You know, they either go into industries that have a – that have been so far dominated by so-so products and try and revolutionize things, or they, uh, they go into an industry that they feel like they can, they can build upon. And the, uh, the content industry and the, you know, after, I don't know what you'd call it exactly. Second day viewing. Um, the, the home entertainment set top box industry is widely varied. You know, you have stuff like TiVo, you have stuff like Roku, yeah, um, and the Apple TV. You have stuff like uh, the the Google. Is it called Google TV? The the little the little. 
oh, dongle no. that you plug in. It's, it's the it's, um, Chrome thing. Chrome Chromecast. There yeah. we go. I don't know why that escaped my memory. But yeah, I mean, you have all of these varied entries, but you have no clear cut, uh, no clear cut dominator in this field that you can really point to and be like that. That is the gold standard. So I, you know, it's possible that Apple's working on the gold standard. Yeah, and well, and also you have smart TVs as well. So not only do you have your set top boxes, <laughs> but now you're getting a TV that's got internet access, and they're throwing stuff on there. I mean, my Panasonic TV's got a bunch of streaming content mm-hmm. available through it. People do want to own the market, but I think the problem for everyone is content. And I think that's why maybe Apple TV is getting a little more popular now because they've been adding more channels and they're making more deals. And ultimately, I think that's what's the win for Apple. If they can turn a key deal, somehow get Comcast content, for example, or make it easier for people to unplug and yet for the cable industry to get its pound of flesh, that's where somebody wins. And I don't think Roku's that company. No, I mean, Apple has a history in this market with music, with what they've already done with movies and television for the Apple TV and on Macs and iPhones. Um, they have the sources and they have the the people to potentially put deals like that in play uh, that I think very few other companies really do. You see, you know, you see executives at Hulu trying to uh, make deals with, uh, with companies like Criterion and, and other things like that, but... Uh, it's a it's a different animal, right? Hulu's uh, focus, you know, Hulu's executives include executives from the TV industry, so it's all still very insular, and they're all still focused on old media. Whereas Apple doesn't, you know, their primary business isn't media. They have the ability to step away and look at the big picture and say, "Hey guys, I know you think that if we give up your traditional ad-supported monthly subscription." you will all die and and cry and and the world will end. But maybe there's an alternative way. Maybe we can work together and make this work. And with something like what they did for the music industry and MP3s as their, you know, as their banner rally, um, it's entirely possible that they might get people uh, in the industry to talk to them who would otherwise not talk to anybody. Also, they have lots of charismatic people. Eddie Q can be very charismatic if he wants to. Tim Cook can also be very charismatic when it comes to making deals and, and making things work. Yeah, I hope that's the case. I think that the one danger possibly is that even though Apple has totally changed the music industry, I think there are people in the music industry who resent it, that they basically, Apple took away their ball and started playing with it. Um Mm-hmm. The music industry is still making a ton of money from Apple, and, and I would venture to say they're making more than they would have if they'd continued along the path they were treading. That said, I, I wonder then if the content people on the video side and the movie side look at the what happened to the music industry and think, man, we do not want to give Apple that kind of power. <laughs> and so I, I do think that they're trying things like Hulu, which, as you suggest, is so insular that Hulu can't do everything it wants. I have to think they're executives at Hulu that are completely frustrated because their partners on the cable side say, no, 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 if you do that, then people won't use us anymore, and so we're not going to give you that resource. So we're gonna, Absolutely. Right, so mm-hmm. we're giving you this crippled service that maybe people will kind of want, but we don't want it to be too good. And so, like you say, it really needs an outsider like Apple to come in and say, you know, the model's changing and you can either change now or you can change later, but it's not going to stay the way it is now. Yeah, 
you can you can av- uh, avoid our life raft if you really want to. Yeah. We're offering you a hand, um, but you know, don't blame us if your boat gets a leak and you drown. <laughs> right. Well, what I think they would probably say is, well, we'll get in, we'll get on board if we can have one of the oars. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think in the past, Apple has, has claimed both of them and said, yes. oh, by the way, most of the water is ours too. <laughs> yeah, you can't get out now. I'm sorry. Yeah. But. Uh, I don't know. I worry if um, if the content deal ends up being something like what's going on with Hulu Plus now, where it's, you know, oh, you can stream these videos, but only 7 to 30 days after airing, or you can't stream certain channels. Um, for right at, at present, Apple, T- uh, Apple has been getting around this with the Apple TV by either offering TV shows for purchase, which seems a little it's it's kind of hard to justify. Yes, I'm going to pay three, four, five dollars for an episode of television um, when I'm mainlining, you know, a couple of seasons because then you run up giant bills. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other side, on the the streaming channels that it offers, you know, it has partnerships with Hulu, so you you get the streaming, but only for certain TV shows. There are TV shows that uh that resist streaming um, entirely via a set top box. Um, and it can only be screamed on a computer because heaven forbid you could stream a TV show yeah. on your television. Yeah. Then the world will fall down. So like they – in order to I think a next generation Apple TV to be successful, um, they really do need to figure out a way to make the content deals a little more appealing to cord cutters because otherwise you're – in the same place you are currently. Yeah, I have to think they would because the kind of deal you're describing, that Hulu sort of deal, it just doesn't seem like Apple. That I can't imagine that Eddie Q or somebody like that would go into one of these offices and they'd say, well, what we're going to do is give you limited streaming and it's only going to happen for these four days and then you're going to have to wait two months before you do this. I mean, that is so not Apple. Apple no. just wants stuff to work. And so as soon as they start piling on these caveats, I think Apple says, no. We'll see you next year. We're going to keep coming back until finally you guys get it (laughs) and realize that's not how people want to watch TV. How do you, you know, and and present them with that scenario. How would you want to watch TV? Then maybe you can start with a reasonable conversation instead of, I know how you want to do business, but talk like you're a TV viewer. What do you want to happen? And what we want to happen is to have a menu of all the stuff we want to see and pull it up and play it anytime we want to. You know, this is probably a huge long shot, and I doubt it would ever happen, but it would be a major coup if Apple could get somebody like HBO to offer an, an on-demand subscription and basically pay HBO enough money from that giant cash reserve of theirs so that HBO's deals with you know cable companies, etc., if they had to cut off certain things, it wouldn't be a huge, huge financial loss um, for HBO. But if they could be like, yes... HBO is now available on Apple TV as a standalone subscription, and that can happen. Like, that, I feel like, would be a game changer. Oh, absolutely. I think HBO makes so much money from cable now that they, they're not willing to do that because I, I know that's been thrown at them a few times. They go, eh, you know, we kind of like our cable partners. Um, yeah, well, I, the cable partners provide them with enough money to make these amazing shows that right. everybody raves about. But if someone like Apple could be like, Oh, you need, you know, a billion dollars a year to stay a, to stay afloat for the first year. Well, we'll give you this billion yeah. dollars in a, you know, we'll pay you a billion dollars um in exchange to have exclusive licensing rights for, you know. I could see something like that playing out. It's it's a long shot, you know, 
fantasy case scenario. Right. But you know, if if Apple came out with a deal like that tomorrow, I feel like there's a there's a whole bunch of people who would be willing to drop their cable subscription almost immediately. Oh sure, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm mainlining a True Detective now through um, <laughs> HBO Go. Yeah, and oh, what a great show! That McConaughey guy, he's pretty good. <laughs> he's uh, not too bad. Yeah, I, I've heard he's uh, he's he's coming up in the world. Um, you know, but what HBO's president and CEO has said recently, which I found really interesting, is somebody talked to him about the um, HBO Go and how people were pirating it by basically sharing their registration information. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, you know, like everybody, you'd say, well, that's just terrible and we're going to knock people's doors down. And instead, he said, yeah, we don't really care about that. Uh, <laughs> we think of it as a form of advertising. So if people do it, yeah, we know they're doing it. But a lot of times they'll watch our stuff and go, wow, this is really good. And then they'll pay us to watch it. Yeah. Uh, and Netf- this, people in charge of Netflix said the same thing. I think that is so refreshing that people way, way up at the top are getting over this sort of old MPAA standard where, you know, they were kicking in people's doors because they were sharing stuff. And instead of saying, yeah, you know, we'd, we'd like the money, but we also understand that people are being exposed to our content and that's good for us too. Yeah. It's, it's the um, Netflix phenomenon yeah. too. It's if everybody's talking about it and there's an, an easy way for you to watch it, once you get hooked, you're going to want to pay for a subscription. I went without cable uh, almost my entire adult life until last year when I finally ponied up for it just so I could have an HBO subscription to legally watch Game of Thrones because I wanted to, you know, give money to the people uh, who were making such an excellent show uh, rather than have to find alternative means of of getting my episodes. Uh, And I feel like if I don't know, it, 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 it makes perfect sense for them not to, to slam the hammer down and be yeah. like, how dare these people, you know, touch our content, our wonderful content. It's the Internet has become too big to police. Exactly. I mean, because so why do it? Because people are going to share. We know there are going to be people that will do that. But also on the other side, just like you, we see people who say, I really love this content. I want to pay for it because I want it to continue. I want them to keep doing True Detective and I want them to keep doing Game of Thrones and, and mm-hmm. all the wonderful stuff that HBO does. So I'm, I've been paying for HBO for years and I don't regret a nickel of it. It's always, they always produce terrific content. I like what they're doing with their, with their uh, network so good for them. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm going to put my HBO sticker on my car, I think. <laughs> All right. Um, we're going to take another break. And this time we're going to talk about Warby Parker, which is uh, classically crafted eyewear at revolutionary price points. And we'll see just how revolutionary that is. And then we'll be back with a couple more topics and wrap up. Warby Parker was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty objective to create booty quality classically crafted eyewear at a revolutionary price point. They believe the glasses should not cost as much as an iPhone. Their prescription glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. Their titanium collection starts at $145, and that also includes prescription lenses. They use premium Japanese titanium and French non-rocking screws. All glasses include a hard case and cleaning cloth, and there are no additional items that you need to purchase. All glasses include anti-reflective and anti-glare coating. No additional cost. Plus, they make buying glasses online easy and risk-free. 
Their home try-on program allows you to order five pairs of glasses to be shipped directly to you. Then you can try them on in the comfort of your own home and get feedback from friends, family, colleagues, and pets, I suppose. You get to keep the frames for five days before sending them back for free using the prepaid returning shipping label with no obligation to purchase. Once you've decided which ones you want, place your order for prescription glasses. They'll get started on them right away, and they'll have them in your hands within 10 business days, and usually they arrive even faster than that. For every pair of glasses sold, they distribute a pair of glasses to someone in need. They also offer non-prescription polarized sunglasses for $95, or $145 if they're titanium, and prescription polarized sunglasses for $150, or $195 if they're titanium. To give it a try, go to warbyparker.com, that's W-A-R-B-Y parker.com slash Macworld to choose your five free home try-on frames. By visiting that URL, you get free three-day shipping. Send the frames back, choose your favorite pair or pairs, and order. Warby Parker makes your experience completely risk-free and free shipping all around. It just so happens it's time for me to get new glasses, and I know where I'm going to check first. WarbyParker.com slash Macworld. And we're back. And uh, kind of the big thing happening this week is CarPlay. And I think there was some talk of it being called iOS in the car. And they came up with a snappy Too long. <laughs> yeah, too long. They, that's what they showed to people at WWDC under that, uh, that banner. But now they're, they're calling it CarPlay. So tell us about CarPlay. CarPlay uh, is largely unchanged about for what they pitched it at, uh, at WWDC last year. Uh, it's basically a um, integrated version of iOS in your car's uh, heads-up display. So when you're uh, talking to Siri, for example, or pulling up your music or viewing your maps, um, it's all powered by iOS. So you get iOS maps or uh, Siri directly instead of some third-party uh, voice-activated software that doesn't work nearly as well as you would like it to. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a really cool idea for, uh, for integrating with your car. The sad thing for me is, of course, it's only going to be available in 2014 models and certain 2014 models at that. So not every you know, Volkswagen won't have it. Uh, Ford is hedging on whether or, what, or whether or not they'll actually have it. Uh, but Volvo has been confirmed mm-hmm. as, a, uh, as a CarPlay uh, manufacturer. And I'm sure – I think there are a couple others mentioned in the press release. Uh, Volvo was the only one that I saw with a – straight out commercial about it oh yeah no ferrari is gonna do it ferrari that's right and we were talking mercedes. about <laughs> yeah so uh ferrari and mercedes uh i live in boston if you want to show me a test drive of carplay <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah so it's uh i i expect this is something that's going to roll out into other manufacturers in, in the next couple of years but right now <clears throat> and they're doing the high end, which I was a little surprised they didn't do BMW because normally that's sort of where one of the first places that incorporates this stuff. I seem to remember that BMW was mentioned as a partner on the original iOS and the car slide from last year. I'll oh, have okay. to double check. Uh, but it's entirely possible that they're still working out a specific deal regarding it or that BMW doesn't want to launch it until their 2015 line. Uh, you never know. I, but I seem to remember that uh, BMW and Mini Cooper and that sort of those those lines were uh, were set to receive it at some point. Okay. Well, a couple of weeks ago, there was the rumor around that Apple was going to buy Tesla. Not. <laughs> um, so I have to think this was that's what that meeting was about. Is saying, yeah, you know, can we put our CarPlay in your cars too? Absolutely. 
Yeah. Um, so, but it's a, it's an interesting idea. I really, uh, I was talking to Dan Warren about this. I really wish that there was an aftermarket version of CarPlay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, things like the, um, like the current Volkswagens, for instance, have this great little button on the steering wheel that you can press. And theoretically, you know, you, you would be able to get Siri, except Volkswagen has its own voice activated software. Um, and in some models, voice activated navigation. And it's of course much worse than anything you can get on a cell phone today, Apple Maps or otherwise, because it's the software that you got when the car was first rolled off the manufacturing right. line. And it's, you know, the benefit of having an iOS device or iOS software is that it's easy to update. And I'm sure that's a, that's a, a, a you know, a line item in Apple's contract with CarPlay is like, this should be easily updatable either by the user or by the manufacturer. So that, you know, if there's a bug or if there's an update, users can get it and they're not just stuck with 10 year old software in their cars, you know, 10 years down the line. Well, I'm sure that car manufacturers would love it if you just change cars every couple of years. <laughs> because, Wouldn't and, that be lovely? Well, the interesting thing about this is that this is, um, you know, basically your car has become an iPhone accessory. A very expensive <laughs> one. But, but it, more or less. Yeah, because it's um, – it, well, so people understand. This is not software that's built into um, – into the car to the point where you just have iOS in the car. You still have to have an iPhone. So your iPhone basically works as the, as the receiver and that your car's in-car display becomes the interface. And then it will push certain kinds of content from your phone to the display and then, and then back again. So for example, it won't, do, it won't run every app that you have on your phone. But instead, you can use Siri, you can use Maps, you can do audio stuff, you can use Siri to like uh, send somebody a message or send a call. But as far as I know, it doesn't do video, which I think is great. I'm glad. Yes, that- video would be very a poor decision on the behalf of car manufacturers if they don't want to get sued. Right. Well, and that's the other question about that is how how safe is this? I mean, I know one of the nice things they're doing is they're going to make all the controls in your car compatible with this. So if you turn a knob, whether you're driving a Ferrari or a Mercedes or a Volvo, it should have the same effect on on the interface. So you're not going to have to do a bunch of stuff. It'll just work. But in terms of putting a lot of stuff on that touch screen, is this a good idea or not so much? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to the fact that at this point, um, no matter how many laws that uh, the state governments and um, country governments pass, people are addicted enough to their phones that there's a pretty good likelihood that someone's going to be staring at a screen sometime while they're driving. And I think the the question on the car manufacturer side and on Apple, because, you know, Apple does care about safety to a certain extent is, you know, how do we do this? How do we provide... um, an avenue for people to do this that's much safer mm-hmm. than the, oh, I'm just going to hold my cell phone surreptitiously under the steering wheel and, you know, potentially crash into somebody. Right. Whereas, you know, if I put, if I have this display um, right next to the steering wheel or even, you know, in the speedometer section or God forbid, I saw t- uh, concept cars at the LA auto show last year that had, you know, a heads up display that actually was superimposed over the glass um, at sort of like a light opacity, um, things like that 
has as much as it seems like, oh, it would be super distracting. Um, it may well be less distracting than someone trying to hold a phone in their hand. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a you know cost benefit analysis, I suppose. Right, and where I do think the interesting uh, contrast is, is that Apple's doing this, and and I think you're right. I think they're going to design this so it can be as safe as possible. Whereas Google is trying to push lobbyists <laughs> to allow Google Glass while you're driving, which. I have to think would be more distracting and not a yeah. great idea. And and it yeah, and Apple's not. Even, I mean, Google's not even talking about it. I mean, this came out that they were sending lobbyists to eight different states to try to lobby legislators to say no, 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 make this legal, make this okay, <laughs> and not at all talking about the public perception, which is we understand that you may think this would be really dangerous. These are the steps we're taking, so it's not. I've heard nothing like that. No, it's it's all focused on the legal issues and consumers later. But that's kind of Google in a nutshell. You know, they've they've been primarily an insular company. Right. Um, they're not as consumer facing as a company like Apple. Right. And then they'll say, well, we're going to have these self-driving cars about the same time that everybody can get <laughs> Google Glass. So, you know, why they not? They don't have to pay attention to the road anymore. It's no reason to pay attention to the road unless something fails in our Chrome Drive software, oh, at gosh. which point you can't take over the car anyway. So, you know, watch them send a quick message before you crash into a wall. Not that that would ever happen. No, no, of course not. No. Hypothetical self-driving cars are 100% safe. Yeah, absolutely. Like jetpacks. <laughs> um, uh, yes. Yeah, so we have uh, CarPlay. That for, so anybody who, who gets one of these cars, let us know, please. We'd like to know what the experience is like. If you want to take us for a test drive in your Ferrari, we'd be happy to do that. Uh, or Mercedes. They're very comfortable. Or even a Volvo. Um, and finally, last subject is uh, something you sent around about Snow Leopard. There's apparently there's an Internet kerfuffle about the death of Snow Leopard. Just a little bit of an internet kerfuffle. Uh, so when the SSL bug uh, came to light, uh, as far as I know, the SSL bug technically only uh, affects Mavericks, but there were also patches applied. Um, and for for the other operating systems uh, to address, you know, various security issues and maybe to, to, super, to make super secure that there was no mm-hmm. flaw in prior operating systems. Uh, but Snow Leopard was left out of those patches, and that left that led a, a couple people to to prompt the article. Oh, has Apple abandoned support for Snow Leopard? Uh, to which, you know, I don't think it's as much of a kerfuffle as people want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Snow Leopard is is now quite a few years old, and Apple traditionally uh, ends support for prior operating systems, with the exception of horrible security flaws uh usually uh this is it's uh the system after the the current system Mm -hmm. so for instance if they're supporting mavericks they'll also support mountain lion but lion probably won't get much love from here on out um and instead recently uh apple looks at it's supporting both mavericks mountain lion and lion uh, but there are people mad that, oh, well, if you're going to support two operating systems past your prior, why don't you support three operating systems? And, well, if you want Apple to ever make new products, <laughs> maybe it's time to upgrade from Snow Leopard. Right. Because this came out uh, – I did, I did my Google research. It came out August 28, 2009. So it's four and a half years old now. 
And it was also the last version of OS X that supported PowerPC. So it's got a bunch of code in there that Lion, Mountain Lion, and Mavericks don't have. So it isn't simply Apple saying, well, it seems a little too old, so we don't care about you people. But rather, it's a whole different kind of coding issue that's like, oh, no, 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 no. Okay, so we gotta, we got to do this for the Intel side, and we've got to do something for the PowerPC side. Do we really want to put our – no, we don't. We don't want to put our resources into doing something like this. So it, for a lot of people who didn't want to um, – or who still needed to run apps that were universal that had – or sorry, that were, had only PowerPC code, they're sticking with – with uh, Snow Leopard, and I understand it. I have no problem with people wanting to use old technology. But there comes a point, and in Apple's case, it's usually about five years, when Apple says, okay, you know, we've supported you for the last five years. They did that with HyperCard and Apple Works, and actually even longer for Apple Works. But finally, Apple says, you know, five years is about it. And, uh, and so you're on your own. If you want to stick with the old tech, that's fine, but don't expect a lot of uh, hand-holding from us at this point. Yeah, and uh, I think that's perfectly reasonable on their part. You know, if again, if you want Apple to innovate, and there are so many people saying, well, why isn't Apple innovated fast enough? The answer is probably, well, we have some engineers still working on these products, and uh, we'd really like to be innovating, new, you know, making new stuff for you, but we can't when we're still supporting five-year-old software. Right. Yeah. So um, those people on the internet who are really, really upset about this, um, don't be. It's not that big a deal. (laughs) It's pretty normal. You see it in most tech companies. Apple actually has a history of supporting both its hardware and its software longer than your average tech company. Um, And for people who are scared to move up to Mavericks because... You know, when uh, when Lion first came out, uh, there were, there's quite a few changes between Snow Leopard and Lion, and that got a lot of people very nervous, and, oh, well, multiple displays isn't what it used to be, and I don't think I can do my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now that we've had, you know, two more iterations on top of that, Mavericks, uh, Mavericks pretty much reinstates almost everything that Snow Leopard users were afraid to upgrade to. So if you're if you're one of those people... Uh, holding out on Snow Leopard because you're you're really concerned that uh, you're going to lose key functionality unless you're working on a PowerPC only app. Uh, there's a there's a good chance that Mavericks has what you need, and and it might be time to to think about upgrading or getting a computer that that allows you to upgrade. Absolutely, and even if you, I still have a couple of issues with Mavericks. It's my main operating system, but. Uh, I thought Mountain Lion was great. I thought it was one of the best OSs they've done in a long time. So if you're still a little concerned about Mavericks, go to Mountain Lion. I, honestly, it has Chris Breen's stamp <laughs> of approval, which means absolutely nothing. But um, I always found it to be quite In your stupid. heart, Chris. That's right. Uh, I, I love that operating system. It's so nice. Um, so, yeah, not a big deal. Upgrade if you need to, but you don't have to go to Mavericks if you don't want to. That's true. That's true. And I think that's enough, don't you? Yes, I think we've uh, just about talked ourselves out of the week's I, uh, Apple news. I think we have, and I'm getting a cold, so I'm done. Oh. So, <laughs> this was fun. Thank you. I, I enjoyed uh, getting together again. Of course. I always enjoy our little talks. Okay. Well, let's talk again next week. All right. Sounds like a plan, Chris. And that wraps up another episode of the Macworld Podcast, sponsored by Igloo, an intranet that you'll actually use and like, and Warby Parker classically crafted eyewear at a revolutionary price point. 
Thanks very much for listening.